a testimony to God's faithfulness to his mission. Welcome to Aletheia Church. Thanks for joining us during spring break. Um, for those of you who are new, we have these scripture reading, Acts scripture reading journals that you can have on the left-hand side. It's just the book of Acts. On the right-hand side, it's just some place to take some notes. So if you have not received one of those journals, now would be the opportunity to do so. If you want to raise your hand, if you are new and would like one over there, <laughs> um, then please feel free to do so. I'm going to go ahead and start us in prayer before I get into it, though. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to come together and to, to worship you. I pray that's what would happen in, this, in these moments, that you would be praised, you would be exalted. I pray that your spirit would guide us and comfort us as we dig into your word. It would all be about you. Help me to be an effective vessel and a conduit that, that spreads your truth. May you be praised. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. All right. So as you heard, Aaron, who is my fiance, actually just read. What? what? Um, just read. Uh, Acts 11, 19 to 30 is what we're studying today. And one of the main ideas that we see in that text, and subsequently what we're going to see and we're going to talk about today is suffering. And I'm actually really thankful to be preaching about suffering because obviously it's a very relatable topic. Each and every one of us go through suffering on a daily basis, and we bring it. I mean, we're all bringing it to a Sunday morning service, and we've been suffering since the day that we were born, and we will continue to suffer for the rest of our lives. Not only that, all of humanity has been suffering for years and thousands, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years. And thankfully, God's word is not silent on the matter of suffering. It talks about it a lot. Every single book of the Bible tells you about suffering. And the book of Acts is no stranger to that idea. The book of Acts starts with or talks about Peter and John who were persecuted and were uh, arrested by the Pharisees. And then it continues again and says other apostles were also arrested and imprisoned. And then it talks about the stoning of Stephen and how eventually he was executed for his faith in Christ. And then Paul, the one who, or Saul at the time, the one who persecuted and executed, Stephen then went and started ravaging the church. He was pulling people out of their homes and imprisoning them. So the early church really knew suffering. And so here are my goals for today, because today is going to start off with that idea of the church scattering because of Paul's persecution. My goals for today are that we would understand how God operates in the midst of suffering and then we also understand where our comfort comes from in the midst of suffering. So let's go ahead and uh, jump into Acts eleven nineteen through 21, and you can see what I'm talking about. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who in coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So what do we see here? It's introducing this idea again, but this is actually eight to 
12 years or so after the initial suffering of the church, the initial scattering of the church. And so a lot has happened in this time. We had uh, Philip who actually went out in between this time and he preached in Samaria. And he preached to uh, Simon the magician there. And then God called him down the desert road, which is in Judea, to preach to the Ethiopian eunuch. So what does this remind you of? They started off in Jerusalem. That was the hub of the Christian church. And then they transitioned to Judea and Samaria. Great commission. Yeah, Acts 1.8. So let's go ahead and read that. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we're actually seeing that beginning to be fulfilled. Initially, they started in Jerusalem, and then they started to scatter because of suffering and persecution. They went to Judea and Samaria, and in today's text, the third part of this commission is beginning to be fulfilled. The gospel is going to the ends of the earth. But how was that accomplished? Through suffering. The church was being scattered and, it was, and that is what was causing the gospel to be spread and to fulfill Jesus' words to his disciples. His prophecy and his commission to them is getting fulfilled through suffering. So what's interesting about that, something that you'll see all throughout Scripture, I'm not making this stuff up, is, is the idea that God is sovereign over suffering. And that's actually the first point in this in this. Uh, there you go. And this outline of, of this message is that the truth of God's sovereignty is actually a great comfort in the midst of our suffering. And so the reason for that, obviously, I mean, let, let, let me backtrack. I want to make an important note before I jump into that idea. God does not desire your suffering. Okay, there's an important nuance to, to make that God means for suffering to happen, but he does not desire your suffering to happen. He did not desire the early church to be persecuted. He did not desire that Stephen would be stoned. He does not desire whatever suffering you are going through. He doesn't desire it because it's often generated from wickedness and sin. He doesn't desire any of that. God does not desire suffering. He created a perfect world right, of no sin and suffering. It was man that brought that sin and suffering into the world. Yet, God remains sovereign in the midst of it, and he does mean for it to occur. And what is he doing in the midst of it? If he is sovereign over it, what is he doing? He's accomplishing good in the midst of it. That's what we see here in this text. The church is scattering, and the gospel is spreading. Lives are being saved because of suffering. So God is sovereign over suffering. And the story of Joseph is actually very helpful in helping us to understand this idea of God being sovereign over suffering, which, of course, is a comfort to us. Joseph was, was the favorite child. He was born of Jacob, and he was the favorite of all of his brothers. They did not like that. They envied him because of that, obviously. And to make matters worse, perhaps, he he told them in, in, that he had a dream, and in this dream, everyone, his family, everyone in his family was going to bow down before him. 
They did not dig that. So what they decided to do was they were initially, they were like, let's kill him. Let's just get rid of him. And then instead, they were like, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. We can make some money off of this. Let's sell him into slavery. And so Joseph, at the age of 17, can you imagine being 17 and your brothers are like, we hate you. I'm going to sell you into slavery. So he goes to Egypt. He's sold, and he's, and he's losing his, his family, his hometown. He loses everything. I mean, he starts afresh as a slave in Egypt. And so he's kind of at the bottom right now. This is his suffering. And then he slowly, the, the Potiphar, he's in the house of Potiphar, who's the captain of the guard, and he slowly builds his way back up because Potiphar sees that the Lord is with Joseph. And so he's going up and going up, and he's at the top, and he's like, okay, wow, my suffering is gone now. Like, things are going well. Not for long, Joseph. Unfortunately for him, he was good-looking, apparently. And Potiphar's wife took a liking to Joseph, and she pursued him, and he refused. He said, how could I do this great wickedness against God? But that did not stop her. She went and pursued him again and grabbed him by the cloak, and he was like, whoa, and he peaced out of there and fled from that temptation. Unfortunately for for him, she cried rape and accused him of something he never did. And Potiphar, of course, believes the wife. And so, boom, he peeks. He's like basically running the military. And then, bam, right back down, he's in prison. And during his time in prison, he he meets a a baker and a a cupbearer. The baker, uh, he's like, dude, um, well, he interprets their dreams. And to the baker, he's like, you're going to die. So, bye. Cupbearer, though, you're going to live, and you're going to go back to the courts of Pharaoh that you were serving in. So don't forget about me, because you know I'm a dream interpreter. This was good. Don't forget about me. Well, he gets forgotten about, so he spends more time in prison until Pharaoh has a dream that no one can interpret. And the cupbearer is all of a sudden like, Oh, yeah, like, I know a dream interpreter. Joseph, I totally forgot about him. And I can imagine Joseph being like, yeah, bro, like, <laughs> the one thing I told you. But, but so he's brought back up, and what happens is he, he interprets this dream, and he tells Pharaoh there's going to be seven years of, of, of prosperity, and there's going to be seven years of famine, and you've got to take a tax during those seven years of prosperity. You've got to store up all the grain, and you've got to store up all the pro- whatever it is, so that you can sell it back during the seven years of, of famine. He's like, you got to appoint someone to do that. And Pharaoh's like, you seem like the guy for the job. And so he appoints him to go ahead and, and help Egypt in the midst of that. And what happens is the famine comes, there's suffering around the world, and, and Joseph's brothers show up, but they don't recognize him. And what's incredible is, is, is Joseph puts them through, through a series of tests and trials, but eventually he reveals himself to them, and this is what he says to them. Genesis 45, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you... Who sent me here? But God. Whoa. 
Joseph had this mentality in the midst of his suffering that, that God was, was sovereign, and he actually had a plan in the midst of it. Yes, all this wickedness happened, and God did not cause that wickedness, but God had a plan that good things would happen and lives would be saved. And later, Joseph affirms this again because Jacob dies, and so the, th- the brothers think, well, maybe he was kind of playing with us while our dad was alive. And so they're like, well, let's lie to him and say, our father said something to us, you know, so that he doesn't kill us. It says this in Genesis 50, 16 through 21. Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, this is the command, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And then they say, and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That is an incredible mentality to have in the midst of suffering. And his hope was that God had a plan. In the same way that God had a plan for the early church, that lives would be saved and that the church would grow and fulfill Acts 1.8, the Great Commission, Joseph knew lives are being saved in the midst of my suffering. This is good. God has a great plan for me. I have a friend, actually, that suffers like this. He's been in jail for the past year, and it was for a crime that he committed 10 years ago before he was even a believer. But obviously, I mean, I cannot even fathom the type of suffering that one endures whilst in jail. You're, you're separated from all of your community and your loved ones, and you're in a threatening environment constantly, 24-7. Can you imagine being that? Strip away all the niceties of life and just put yourself with a bunch of other people who would probably kill you if, if you upset them just the slightest amount. Very, very hostile. And that's the environment he's in. And yet, if you talk to him, you would be astounded by the peace that he has in the midst of this suffering, similar to what Joseph had, where he's like, I know God is sovereign. And I have peace because good things are, are happening because of my suffering. And it's true. You know, if you know this guy, that you know that he's been leading Bible studies and, and, and praying for people, and people are being saved. He's, he's growing people in their relationship with the Lord, and he takes great comfort knowing that God is doing incredible things in the midst of his suffering. You know what's crazy? He was the one that introduced me to this quote by Charles Spurgeon, and I've always held on to this since he told me it. He says this, Charles Spurgeon does, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. God's sovereignty is what gives him rest, what gives us rest, which gives Joseph rest, which gave the early church rest in the midst of suffering and adversity. You want to know what's interesting? When you go to jail, you don't have a pillow. They do not give you a pillow. I was like, man, 
how much more real does that quote become to him when he literally does not have a pillow to rest his head upon? And so it must be the sovereignty of God that he finds his rest in the midst of adversity and suffering. God's sovereignty is a source of comfort to us. But I, I, I want to make an important note that, that God's sovereignty in, 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 in our suffering, it, our suffering doesn't always look like you know, sunshine and rainbows and just smiling ear to ear and happy-go-lucky, yay, look, look at me, I'm suffering. That's, that's not at all what suffering looks like. And if you look at Joseph, you look at the early church, you look at my friend, that's not what it looks like. There's still great sorrow in the midst of suffering. And that is okay. It is okay to grieve and to weep and to be in pain in the midst of it and yet still find peace and rest. And the story of Job is is a good example of this and another good example of sometimes we don't always understand why God is doing what he's doing. Thankfully for the early church and for Joseph and for my friend, they all knew, hey, God is saving lives. But sometimes we do not know why we are suffering in the way that we are. And Job helps us so much with this. The story of Job. Job was an extremely prosperous guy. I mean, he had it all. A family, tons of servants, tons of livestock, tons of crops, grain, whatever. He had it all. He was doing extremely well. And then the Lord allows Job to be tested by Satan. And so all in one day, all of a sudden, Job, his servants come up to him and say, Job, Job, all of your children are dead. Job, all of your livestock is gone. Job, all, like, everything, your servants, they're gone. Everything is gone, Job. And Job immediately crumbles, shaves his head, and tears his robe and worships God. Suffering often looks like that. But it wasn't, it wasn't over for Job. Soon after that, he's tested again. And not only is everything he, he has lost, but then he gets sores and boils all over his body, everywhere. So to top it off, now that he's lost everything, and now he's in immense pain. Every step, every movement hurts because he has sores all over his body. He can't do a thing without being in pain. And so he's at the lowest of the lows, and it describes to us in, Job, in the book of Job that he is sitting down on the ground, scraping his sores with a broken piece of pottery. Can you imagine being in that kind of suffering where you just lost everything? And to make matters worse, his wife comes up to him and is like, you should just curse God and die. It's like, wow, thank you for those encouraging words. That's like the worst thing you could say to someone. Just die, you know? Just, just accept it and just die. And Job responds to her with this. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Job is saying, God has blessed me so much. Is it not, am I not allowed to, is it not also possible that bad things could happen as well to me? Not from God, but just the suffering. Is it not possible that also those things could happen to me? 
And of course, he did not sin in saying that. Because the reality is both will happen in this life. And that's what he's telling his wife. Now, after that happens, Job's friends hear of this and they decide to come. And they actually do a good thing at first. When they first see him, they don't even recognize him. That's how much, I imagine with all the sores and just the, the, the stress and the burden on his face, and he's probably thin from not eating. They're like, I don't even recognize this guy. But they come up to him and do a good thing, actually. They sit there and weep with him in silence for seven days. That is actually a very good thing to do for someone, especially when they have just suffered to sit there and just be like, bro, I have nothing to say. And just being there for them in the midst of that. Unfortunately for Job, they open their mouths. <laughs> True story. They open their mouths and they say to him, Job, you know what? I think this is your fault. All this suffering that you're doing, it's got to be your fault. All that, that you're enduring, it's got to be your problem. You must have sinned. You must have done some great wickedness. And Job was like, no, I, I didn't. I did nothing wrong. I didn't deserve this. And he was actually right. God deemed Job as upright and blameless. This was a, a testing. It was not because he had done something wrong. But they continue back and forth. He's like, you, you must have done something wicked. And he's like, no, I'm innocent. And it's just literally 30 chapters of that. I'm not kidding. I, had, I read through all of them. <laughs> so 30 chapters of that. At some point, Job gets to the, the lowest of the lows in the midst of his suffering. And he asks that question that we all common, frequently ask, why? Why is this happening to me? Why am I enduring so much pain? Why am I enduring so much suffering? And he says to God, you must be unjust. Surely, if, you pun if, if this idea of punishing the, the wicked and always rewarding the good is, is your system, which his friends were saying is the system of God, then you must be unjust because I am innocent. I did nothing wrong. And this is God's response to Job. This is fantastic. Job 38, 2 through 7. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and make it known to me, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined, excuse me, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who struts the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Where were you when I did all this? He describes this, this beast, this Leviathan, and, and, and another beast, and he's like, these are, are, are massive creatures. I mean, he describes them like they're dinosaurs. They're huge. And, and he says, I could just grip them with my hand. What you cannot tame is nothing to me. I am God. You do not understand what I'm doing. I am sovereign. And God rebukes those friends because they think God operates on a system of karma. Wrong. God does not operate on a system of karma. Your suffering is not necessarily a byproduct of your sin. That's what we learn from the book of Job. 
it's sometimes, it's sometimes we do suffer from our sins, but the reality is it's not a one-to-one correlation or a relationship. Job suffered not because of the wickedness that he did. Now, there's something that we do know about this. Job never got his answer. You can see that. God just said, I'm sovereign, trust me. Job's like, all right, I repent. But he says, I'm sovereign, but we know something that Job didn't. The purpose of his trials was for the testing of his faith, to grow him and to sanctify him. Job was Job grew from this experience. He grew in, 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 in boldness and he grew in, in steadfastness and faith in God through suffering. That's comfort number two. In the midst of our suffering, the idea of sanctification is a great comfort to us because it grows us in the midst of it. We could be more like Christ. Is that not our goal? That's each of our desires. Every single day, for those of us who are followers in Christ, our desire and our goal is to be more like Christ, to be sanctified. And suffering produces that within us. It produced that within Job. And the New Testament affirms this idea a lot. James 1, 2 through 4 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Same idea. They're affirming one another in the truths that we see here. Our suffering actually produces growth within us. That's good news, because that's our goal in this Christian walk that we would be more like Christ. And we can have hope in the midst of that. That's what Romans tells us. Romans 5, 3 through 5. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Our suffering produces a steadfastness, a character, an endurance, a hope within us because it sanctifies us. And really, it's, it's, it's hard for us to, to be sanctified in prosperity. I think a lot of us can kind of understand that. When, when we are doing really well, oftentimes we don't really feel like we need God. Sometimes it takes suffering to help us to refocus where we're at, where we're at, and look upon Jesus and God and, sh- and, and recognize our need for Him. C.S. Lewis quote, captured the, captures this idea in this quote. He says, Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciousnesses, whoop, consciences but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. True. Our suffering absolutely 
sanctifies us. And the world will know it. As we grow in the midst of our suffering, people will see that within us. And then we'll be able to endure suffering even better the next time around. Because we know how to look to Christ. We know how to endure, because it produces endurance and steadfastness. And this is what Barnabas saw in the church. He saw lives being saved, and he saw a church that loved God, a passion for God. I didn't plan to say this, but it makes me think about the church in, in, in China, how there is such a boldness within the church in China that we rarely see. I remember talking to someone from China, and they said that during church, after church, who do they talk about? God. The, the conversation about God does not just happen during the service, but it happens before and after too. There is such a boldness in the church of China. Why? It's the same as the early church. There is so much suffering there. And it produces a strong faith. And that's what Barnabas sees. So let's look at that next section in Acts. Acts eleven twenty two through 26. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So, Paul, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Barnabas, you saw that in verse 23, he came and saw the grace of God. He saw people being saved, and he saw a faith that was impressive and encouraging to him. He was astounded by their steadfastness and their endurance and their hope and their boldness in the midst of it. And seeing all these people added to the church. Why? Because of the suffering of the church produced that within them. It produced a radical nature within them. And then Barnabas was like, dude, this is awesome. You guys are doing great. Just remain steadfast in everything that you're doing. Keep it up. I'm going to grab Saul and come back, and we're going to help you guys continue to do what you're already doing. And so that's what he does. He goes in, he grabs Saul, and they're like, wow, this church is crazy good. Look at their faithfulness. Look at their boldness. And this is actually the third point of how we can find comfort in the midst of suffering. Our elders, the leaders, whoever it may be, they are a source of comfort. In the same way that Barnabas and Paul were, they came and they're like, you guys are doing great. This is awesome. In the midst of a broken and hurting church. And it says at the end that they were teaching them truth. Truth that could comfort. The truth of Scripture that we, are, that we are reading today and say, you guys are doing great. Let me tell you a little bit about more of what we know to comfort you. 
And Paul says in Titus that this is a, a command of all elders. This is a requirement of all elders to teach truth. He says this, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. It's a lot. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So this is the elder's responsibility to teach us this truth that can provide a comfort to us in the midst of the suffering that each of us bring to the table, bring to the service every single week. But not only that, it's good if a church does that and the elders do that faithfully, but the elders are also required to actually actively comfort the church in the midst of adversity. It says this in James 5.14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him or her with oil in the name of the Lord. Are you sick? Are you hurting? Is it depression, anxiety, stress, loss of a loved one? Whatever it is, whatever pain there is, whatever brokenness there is, the elders can come around you and pray for you and comfort you. And the elders at Aletheia do this. I was given permission by Mario to talk about this. Mario is one of our faithful members here at Aletheia. He's been here for a long time. And about a little over a year ago, maybe close to two years ago, his brother Kevin was critically wounded. He was shot in the head while on duty. His brother. And Kevin went to Orlando. Kevin, one of our elders, went to Orlando to weep with him and to comfort him and to pray for him in the midst of that adversity. In the midst of that suffering, Kevin did that. And not only that, but my friend who is in jail, the elders went and visited him regularly to comfort him in the midst of his suffering and to tell him, hey, bro, you're still part of us. We still love you as a church, and we still want to pour into you because we care for you as elders, as our God given God-required command. We want to love on you. And I love that about our elders. And every church should have that. If you go to a church outside of Aletheia, and they do not ever in life, and they do not do that, let them know. Let them know that they are being disobedient to what God has called them to do. Because it is a requirement, and they are a source of comfort in the midst of suffering. Now, the responsibility for, for comforting the elders is, is, is a weighty one. Here's the thing. There's only so much time for each of those elders, and there's only so many elders. we also have to partake in the ministry of comforting. It cannot just be up to the elders. Because we will, as great as they are, we will be a 
hurting church without much comforting. When you have three, four, five elders and 200 people, I guarantee you they do not have enough time in the day. It is our responsibility as a church to love and comfort one another. And this is what we see in the the final section of Acts. We see the church stand up and comfort. Acts 11, 27 to 30. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. What is interesting about this? Everyone, every single person, every, every, every single person, according to his ability, was called to help the other church. Every single person. You know what this reminds me of? By the way, that's point four. Um, we are called to comfort one another. Um, this reminds me of Columbia. We have a church plant down in Columbia, and we give toys during a toy drive, and we also give part of our proceeds at the church to the church in Columbia to help them in the midst of, of their struggles, in the midst of their suffering. We want to provide for them financially and through prayer. This is awesome that Aletheia does this and that Aletheia steps up. And guess what? We are equipped, encouraged, empowered, all those words that we like here at Aletheia, by the elders to do that. They are the ones who foster that, and so they foster that within each of us. How do we comfort one another? They'll teach you from the pulpit and from wherever, but the responsibility absolutely lies with every single person. Every one of us is called to this ministry. Let me just say this. As hard as this may sound, um, we have to let other people comfort us. We have to be putting ourselves in situations where other people can come in and provide words of counsel and comfort. What does that mean? Going to GC is one of those ways. If you are not going to a GC, you know we recommend it and we encourage it. Because guess what you can find there? Comfort from other suffering people. Let me just say this. There are a lot of suffering people. Yes, your suffering may be unique. Somewhat. But I have met so many people who struggle with depression, anxiety, loss of a loved one, loss of a job, whatever it is, trauma from like everything. I've heard all of these things from Aletheia. And these people are here, and they know this truth, and we can comfort one another. But we have to be willing to go and spend time with the church if we want to be comforted by the church. And so God calls us to do this. And I'm thankful that Aletheia does this. We saw this with uh, Columbia and we have a group me as well. 
And this is a cool thing that Aletheia has been doing for maybe a year now. We have a group meet. Literally anyone can join it. You just hop on in there, and you will just see tons of people saying, hey, pray for my family member who is sick. Hey, pray for me. I am depressed. Hey, pray for me. Lost my, Whatever it is, every form of suffering, people are posting in there, and people are giving words of encouragement and comfort to those people, fulfilling this responsibility of the church. And kudos to those of you who are doing that, for fulfilling what God has commanded us to do. And I'm thankful for all of those. There's many people here also who have visited my friend in prison or in jail. That's part of what we have to do. And not only that, when he was um, sent to, to jail, he had two months of rent that he could not pay off because he was not able to work in those two months. And so 15 people from Alethea stood up and raised $900. Not bad. Fifteen people, though, I think is the cooler part about that. Fifteen people stood up and said, I'm going to help. I want to give money to help him now that he is suffering. That is awesome. And that is exactly what it looks like. For Aletheia to comfort one another in the midst of suffering. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, through, uh, 1 3 through 7, a little bit about this. And it leads us into point five, I think we're on, that God also comforts us directly. Let's read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. But we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. We suffer together and we comfort one another together. As a church, we are commanded to do this. And thankfully, we have God comforting us so that we can comfort How does he comfort us? Through his word. God has given us a book written by him. He says, read it. Every book, as I mentioned, talks about suffering. Every single book. And it's free. If you have a phone. If not, I'll buy you one. Not a phone, a Bible. <laughs> Don't get carried away with that. <laughs> not, no, not a phone. But we each have the opportunity to read the word. And as we read the word, the spirit of God, the spirit of God is dwelling within those who are in Christ. In you, in your heart. And as you read it, the Spirit of God is revealing truth to you and comforting you and just opening your eyes to the truth of God's Word. 
And as you seek, you can pray in the midst of that, and the Spirit intercedes on your behalf and, and, and is able to help you as you study this word. If you follow through with us in our uh, community Bible reading, you know that yesterday we we read Psalm 61. And these are some of the comforting words that you can find throughout Scripture. And they were comforting for me when I was very stressed about preaching this sermon. (laughs) Truly. I was so stressed, and I woke up in the morning, and I was like, all right, let's do this reading. And this is what I read. To the choir master with stringed instruments of David, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge. A strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. That is comfort to know that in the midst of our pain and suffering, we have a God who cares for us and who is there for us and says, come on in. Embrace me in the midst, not me, God, I'm talking about from God's perspective. Embrace me in the midst of this. Cling to me. Find refuge in me. Know that I am a strong tower of defense for you. Because of your faith in Christ, I am that for you. That is so comforting to know. Point number six in the sermon plays on this idea that one day, this suffering is actually going to end. And that is comforting. Because you think about it, I am so thankful that this life is not how it's going to be in eternity. As much as I love the many blessings of this life, there are so many things where I'm like, hallelujah, it's going to end one day. Honestly, honestly, I feel that way sometimes. And guess what? It will. For those of you who are in Christ, this suffering ends. It says this in Revelation something. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. (laughs) Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This one day, this will end. The depression the loss of loved ones, the job problems, whatever it is, one day it will end. That's good news. That is a source of comfort. But the reality is, this is only a comfort to those of us who are in Christ. 
right? This is what we believe. This is what Scripture tells us, that the suffering only ends for those who can stand before the Father redeemed by the blood of Christ. In that moment, God will demand perfection from everyone. Not that you do more good than you do bad. He will demand perfection. And the only way to stand before him perfect is when you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And he will look at you and he will see his son. And he will say that he is pleased. That is the only way that that would be your destiny. Through Christ. For those who are not in Christ, the suffering only gets worse. Right? We know this to be true. If you believe what the Bible says, the suffering only gets worse. It will be amplified as they are punished for the sins and the rebellion and the rejection of God. That will be their destiny. They said, I didn't want to serve you, God. That is the destiny. It's described as a path of destruction that everyone is on. May this produce an urgency within us. Because we do not desire that for anyone. We want people saved. We want this suffering to end for everyone around us. Right? So for those of you who are not in Christ... It is not my goal to, to, to cause fear because fear will not produce a genuine faith. Fear of hell will never point you to God. It just won't. That will not be your reason for serving God. The reason we come every Sunday is not because we don't want to go to hell. It's because we love Jesus we have a desire to serve him, right? That's why we worship. If you don't want to go to hell, if that was our goal, why would we even come? We'd be like, got my ticket, I'm good. Now I can live the way I want to live. No, no. We are being sanctified, and we want to be sanctified, as I mentioned. We want to be more like Christ. We want to worship, and we want to serve him because he's worthy. He is so worthy of all of our praise, and we desperately desire to praise him. So I do not want to just instill fear, but rather that you would know the truth and that there is a path of destruction and there is only one path to life, and that is through Jesus Christ. Right? So I'm going to invite the band back up. I want to close with this idea. This is our seventh comfort in the midst of our suffering. Paul says this in Philippians 3, 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He says, 
I'm cool with suffering. You know why? Because that points me to Jesus. Right? That is why we take communion. That is why we do this every single Sunday, because we bring our burdens, our pain, our suffering up to the altar, and we recognize that it is Jesus' blood that was spilled and his body that was given to us. He suffered far more than we ever could and we ever could imagine. Right? Not only was he betrayed and denied, but he was beaten and bruised and crucified. And the worst of it all was that he took the wrath of the Father, the one who he was connected to with in perfect community for eternity past, and he's forsaken by that Father for us because he was bearing that sin upon himself. So in the midst of our suffering, where do we look? At the cross. Every time. And that's the beautiful thing about suffering, is that Jesus suffered far more than we ever could, and it will always point us to him. That's the beauty of suffering. So I want you to do that. As we take communion, take that suffering and that pain up to there, up to communion. And take part of it and take joy in it, knowing that your Savior suffered far more than we could possibly imagine. For those of you who are, are, are not in Christ, we actually do not encourage you to take communion because it is an act of faith, recognizing the work that Jesus did. But let me encourage you, in this time, to seriously consider this. Because we actually believe this. We actually believe this truth. What I'm telling you, I am not just saying. I truly believe this. And so does everyone else that believes in what the Bible says. We actually think this. Truly. And so let me say this. You have the opportunity now to talk to people that are going to be staying up here. Elders, people will be in the back as well. This is an opportunity if this is something that you think you may want to pursue, if you want to serve Jesus, truly serve Jesus, and repent of sins for the rest of your life, talk to them about it, or talk to whoever brought you here, or whatever. Honestly, this is very serious. Let's pray. Father, We thank you that we get to serve you and to know you because of the work of your son that has redeemed us and allows us to stand before you. Thank you. Thank you for comforting us in the midst of adversity, in the midst of suffering, that you are there for us and we are not alone. You have given us a community. You've given us your word. You've given us spirit. You've given us everything to be able to endure this suffering, namely, most importantly, Christ himself, you have given us to look to. May we run to Christ in the midst of our pain and suffering. May you be exalted in this time. May we recognize how worthy you are of all of our praise. Amen. A testimony to God's faithfulness to his mission, which is to see the God in the likeness of his death and raise to walk in newness of life.